Thank you, Joe. Good evening, everybody. Um, don't be too intimidated by the, the amount of ink on the outline. Um, this is actually quite a simple talk, uh, as we'll see, but there is quite a lot of... Uh, uh, there are quite a lot of uh, Bible passages we're going to look at, but I'll just put them on the outline uh, for speed. So the topic is the mission of the church. And uh, over the last few weeks, hopefully, we've become very clear about what the church is, the nature of the church, the identity of the church. And we've seen, hopefully, that the ordinary... Well, we have seen, hopefully, we've all understood it. Uh, the ordinary local church is the place on earth where the heavenly realities of the Christian life are enjoyed in fellowship with one another. Does that sound like a sort of definition of what we've seen? The ordinary local church is the place on earth where the heavenly realities of the Christian life are experienced and enjoyed in fellowship with one another. That's what we've seen, isn't it? Or, as we put it in our sort of definition, we can fill in, God is gathering a people to be with him in eternity. That heavenly gathering is seen now in the ordinary local church. Or if you want something even smaller and pithier, the church is the gathering of those God is gathering for the gathering. I thought three gatherings were enough. The church is the gathering of those God is gathering for the gathering. So as Joe reminded us in his prayer just now, God has invested his great purposes for the world in the local church. This is the privilege that we have in becoming part of God's purpose. And so this is where the action is. Um, this is what matters, this is what lasts, this is where people come to meet with God and build a relationship with God. So hopefully by now then we're clear what the church is, that's a summary of the nature of the church. But that should lead us to another question, shouldn't it? What does the church do? What is the mission of the church? Well, have a think. Those two things are connected. What the church does is going to be tied to what the church is. The mission of the church flows from the identity of the church. So if God's plan is to gather his people to himself and to shape them to be like Jesus in order to be with him for eternity, then the mission of the church is to play its part in that plan, which means, very simply, that the church is to grow. We are all about growth. But there are two kinds of growth. First, outwards in number. Sorry, I'm just going to move that so I don't bash it. And secondly, growth upwards in maturity. So let's think about those two types of growth uh, for the, uh, the bulk of our time uh, together this evening. Firstly then, a mission out, the outward type of growth. Think back to the promises that God made to Abraham. Look at it on the sheet in Genesis chapter 12. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here is the beginning of the nation of Israel. God makes a promise to one man, Abraham, and the promise sort of extends down through history, down through time, to his family. But notice that the promise also is going to extend outwards geographically because God says all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through him. So God makes a promise to one man, but that promise is going to impact the whole world, all nations. And at various times in the Bible story, you see little examples of that. So remember the Joseph story? Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Abraham, uh, is meant to be, um, well, sorry, is the means God uses to bless Egypt, to bless the people, uh, to save many people from famine. Um, you see another example of that through the Exodus. We learn that the reason for the Exodus is 
um, obvious to save God's people. Um, but look at Exodus uh, 9, 16. Sorry, the chapter's missing. It's chapter 9, 16. God is doing all this so that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God is rescuing the Israelites for their sake, obviously, but actually there's a greater purpose in it. It is a global purpose. He wants his name to be praised uh, throughout all the earth. Or have a look at it in Exodus 19. Here is the moment just before uh, God gives them the Ten Commandments. Look at what he says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my com covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So one reason the law is given is so that Israel can be kind of shaped into this nation that is going to so impress the world that they can actually see something that they won't see anywhere else. Look at it in Deuteronomy 4 as well. See, I've taught you these decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So God gives Israel this special uh, group of laws, body of laws, which is meant to make them look different and impressive and godly. And the nations are supposed to look on and think, wow, we want to be like them. Well, have a look at it in, nine, in Psalm 96, verse 7. Here the psalmist is talking about the praises of Israel. So I want you to notice that same kind of global perspective, international perspective. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He'll judge the peoples with equity. So imagine uh, Israel going to the temple to sing a, a praise psalm like that. And they are thinking as they're praising God of the world around them and how this is the God of all the nations and that the nations should in some way hear their praises and come to worship God. So to summarize all that, Israel, before Jesus, had a mission just turn to your neighbour and see if you can sort of summarise what, what you, how you would describe the mission uh, based on those sort of five or six passages we've, we've just looked at. Can you put the mission of Israel into a, sing, a simple kind of sentence? Okay, 30 seconds to do that. Right, brilliant. I just got a couple of answers and they were, they were great. I'm not going to pick on people. Um, but the, the gist of it was... Um, Israel are to do something with God in the sight of the nations. That was what kind of came across from, from both of those answers. So there's a sort of, you know, Israel's relationship with God, but that's to have an impact in the nations. My summary was simply to glorify God among the nations, to glorify God among the nations, to sort of re reveal, you know, God's glory among the nations. Um, so look at this uh, diagram we shall see on the bottom of the sheet. Um, and also there, and I think that kind of summarizes what we've just said in that the mission is a mission that pulls people in. It's a display 
of God's glory. It's a centrifugal mission, isn't it? Um, no, it's not. It's a centripetal mission. I always get those things wrong. In that people are being drawn in rather than flung out. And that is a surprise, isn't it? And something that is, needs, we need to get our head around a little bit because when we think of mission, we tend to think of sending. We tend to think, okay, missionaries are people who send out. In fact, the word mission comes from the Latin to send. That is kind of the basic idea of it. But Israel had a mission that was about drawing people in, a bit like moths are drawn to a flame. And hopefully you could see that. Have a look at it in Isaiah 60. Nations will come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas we brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So there's this kind of expectation that Israel's going to be the center of the world, that the riches, the wealth, the glory of the nations is going to come because they're so uh, impressed with Israel's God. But have a look at Ezekiel chapter 5, which is sort of on the bottom of the sheet and at the top of the next one, I think. Um, and this shows us that actually that mission failed. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I've set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet, in her wickedness, she rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She's rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You've been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You've not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Can you see how, with that great expectation of Israel obeying the law and being a light to the nations, actually their failure to obey the law, their failure to even live up to the standards of the nations, actually sinking below the standards of the nations meant that their mission failed. How could they be a light to the nations? How could the magnet draw them in when the magnet had lost their power? Well, this brings us to the New Testament and to Jesus. Now, there's many ways to think about Jesus, of course. He is the son of God. He is the son of David. He is the son of Adam. He's all those things. But it's important as well to remember that Jesus is the true Israelite. He actually represents Israel, the nation, in his being, in his life, in his work. And as the one true Israelite, he succeeds where Israel fails. He keeps the law. He worships God perfectly. He is the one Israelite who actually succeeded where Israel failed in all of those promises. In Matthew's Gospel, uh, just before Jesus begins to preach, Matthew draws attention to the fact that Jesus goes to live in Galilee. And why is he interested in this? Well, because it fulfills what Isaiah said in Isaiah 9, which I didn't actually put on the sheet, but Isaiah talks about the Gentiles receiving the light of the world. And look at it in Matthew 4, 15. Matthew seems to think that because Jesus goes to live in Galilee, this is the beginning of the fulfillment. Land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Jesus is now becoming the light of the world 
that Israel was supposed to be. But here's a question. How do the Gentiles receive the light? Do they come to the light, as was expected in the Old Testament, or does the light go to them, as Jesus seems to have done here? Well, the answer is both. Jesus is the one who has been sent by God to bring salvation to the world and thus fulfill the promises of God to Abraham. He is the one who completes the fulfillment. He is the one descendant of Abraham, the one who's right through whom God will bless all people. But he does it in two ways. There are two parts to his, uh, the direction of the mission now. He draws people to himself, as Israel failed to do. So, for example, and here's the next uh, sort of uh, bit of the diagram. He, he fulfills where Israel failed. Uh, do you remember the, um, the strange little story in the Nativity um, where the three... Well, we don't know if there are three wise, well, we don't know if they were wise men. Men, well, yeah, they were men. Um, from the Orient, well, maybe. But anyway, those um, unnumbered, strange magicians who came from the East, and they gave the baby Jesus some gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why we think there were three. What was so significant about them, other than that they make a great sort of nativity uh, story, because they were the fulfillment of Isaiah 60, the nations bringing their wealth. They were the representatives of the, the strange oriental nations around, actually coming and being so impressed with Israel's God that they brought him uh, their wealth. That's the significance of it. So a surprising fulfillment of Isaiah 60, three wise men coming to the baby in the manger. Not because it was two years later. But anyway, that's another story. But here's the big change. The nations come to Jesus. Uh, Jesus then gathers disciples to him. So people are coming to him. But here's the big change. Jesus then sends them out. He flips the mission uh, in reverse for the first time in the Bible. Mark 1.17, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He calls them and he sends them. So here is the moment the great mission of God turns around. So Jesus has a coming and going mission. He attracts and he sends. And that mission dynamic is then replicated in the church. So in the book of Acts, for example, um, the Spirit comes. Jesus sends the disciples out to the ends of the earth. They start going around preaching the gospel. Goodness, it's dark in here, isn't it? I've just realized how dark it is. Um, I need to get the screen back on. Maybe it's me. My eyes are going. Uh, let's have the screen back on just to, um, uh, to get a bit more light. Um, but he, uh, they preach to the um, Mediterranean uh, in the book of Acts, and you see little churches kind of starting, don't you? What do those churches do? Do they kind of huddle together in a holy huddle and enjoy being Christians? No. Uh, and if they do, they get severely reprimanded by the apostles. They replicate the mission of Jesus. They attract and they send. And so the mission of the church looks like the mission of Jesus. The churches now become the magnets which draw people in. The Christian churches now are the light of the world. The very thing that Israel failed to be and Jesus uh, was. But those churches don't just attract, they also send out the Christians to preach their neighbours, missionaries overseas, church planters, and so on. And so the pattern is now centripetal and centrifugal at the same time. Or because it's quicker to write, coming and going. Now there's great debate in um, 
among pastors and theologians and people who write books on church growth, whether the church is primarily attractional or missional. So should we be kind of, you know, just working hard to attract people? Should we, for example, replace the pews with comfy seats? I personally think we should, but we're not allowed to. Um, should we make church kind of something that you just is a brilliant thing for outsiders to come, come into? Should it be attractional? Lots of books and proposals about that. But then there's a whole load of others that say, no, the church should be missional. Don't worry about how comfortable it is. Don't worry about the experience of church. Actually, we've got to be out there in the world preaching the gospel. If you were to sort of have a look on Amazon, you'd probably find at least 100 books on that kind of debate. Well, I'll save you reading them all um, because the answer you can see from the diagram is both. It is both at the same time. We are to be attractional and missional at the same time. Have a look at it in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Listen to that Israel language coming back in, now applied to the Christian church, a people belonging to God, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What for? So that we can have a holy huddle and enjoy? No, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's a perfect sort of illustration of the coming and going, isn't it? God has made you a holy nation, and now as we praise God, that is, as we do evangelism, uh, which is what praise really is in the New Testament, you can't really uh, separate the two, uh, other people are coming in. And therefore, if you want to be a missionary, if you want to take part in God's plan, the number one thing you have to do is throw yourself into a local church. This is why the Spirit was sent in Acts 1 to equip the servants to bear witness to him in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to all of the uh, ends of the earth. This is the mission that we are to be involved in between now and when Jesus returns. But that's just the mission outwards. There is another dimension, another dynamic going on, which is the mission upwards. Look at it in Colossians chapter 1. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. See, what is Paul trying to achieve? He says he's proclaiming Christ, he's teaching, and what is the end result of that? What has he got in mind? What is his goal? To present everyone perfect in Christ. In other words, Paul preaches the gospel to convert people, and he preaches the same gospel to mature them. He's already said earlier in uh, the passage in Colossians that he's preached this uh, unsearchable riches of Christ's gospel, and they've been converted. Now he's saying he's going to continue to proclaim that same gospel, that same word, right to the end of Christian maturity. So here's another diagram. Uh, you don't need to copy all those words at the bottom, but the basic idea is that when somebody is converted, um, there is a great change. Um, they go from darkness to light, as he, as he puts it, um, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, uh, from death to life. There are, you know, great change comes about. But once you're over the line and have been converted, that's not the end of the story. The word keeps on working. It keeps on forming us, training us. And there is never a time 
that you don't need to hear the gospel and be shaped and matured in Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We don't often place much emphasis on that word make. Jesus is promising to actually train the disciples to become mature uh, followers of him. So these two dimensions of the mission, outwards in evangelism and upwards in maturity, are kind of two, and I've, I've, I've sort of talked about them as two separate things, but they shouldn't be separated too much in our thinking. They are connected and interdependent because they happen both at the same time by the gospel. And so let's think then about them uh, both together for a little uh, while. There's a little heading at the bottom that should be at the top of the next page, uh, Mission Out and Up. And again in 1 Peter, have a look at uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, and you see the connection. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So as we put sin to death, grow in holiness in our relationship with God, the church, the world outside, the pagans are looking on and taking note. This is also what we're seeing in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is what 1 Timothy is about. It's about the church becoming uh, a means for God to, to proclaim his glory, his order, his goodness, his gospel to the ends of the earth. And then Ephesians 3.10 says the same thing. Paul tells us the effect of unity within the church on the watching universe. Here's a very important little passage. Ephesians 3.10.11, his intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul in Ephesians, you'll know, is very interested in the unity between Jew and Gentile. It's not something that we uh, particularly are worried about now, but in the first century, this was the biggest deal of all because the division in humanity took that particular line, Jew and Gentile. And no one could ever imagine that being restored. But Paul says, here it is, in the church. That's where you see Jews and Gentiles now living together as brothers and sisters with that great kind of dividing wall of hostility gone. And that's why he calls the wisdom of God, which is displayed in the gospel, manifold, because it's many-sided, it's it's colored like a, a rainbow because there are multi-ethnic uh, gatherings in this one place, something you don't see anywhere else. And he says that when the authorities, that is the kind of the spiritual authorities in the universe, watch on, they are amazed. What could possibly have brought this unity about that Jew and Gentile are living together in the same place, none other than the gospel? And it's interesting, isn't it, to think about where else you might see this. Um, I know I've told this story in another context, but there was a letter sent into the Lancaster Guardian a little while ago, and the heading was, Is there a divide between students and the rest of the community? Student Danny Bland sums up the problem. There should probably be a sort of scheme to get us all in the same place a bit more. 
I can imagine a big, friendly restaurant where students can go and work, families can go out for a meal, kids can play, elderly people meet up, but I doubt anyone would speak to each other even if they were in one place. Can you picture it? This big, friendly place where students and non-students kind of gather together. Well, some of us have had lunch today, haven't we, with students, non-students, babies, toddlers, adults, grandparents. And uh, I wrote back to that letter, and I said, well, there is such a place. It's called the church. And I think there is nowhere else uh, on earth where you get that. Well, if that's the mission of the church, then, uh, we need to keep on mission. It's very easy to see, uh, sorry, it's not easy to see when your eyes are watering like mine are. I don't know why that is. It's very easy to lose this clarity of the mission of the church. Uh, What makes it easy to lose the clarity? Well, because there are so many needs in our world. And those needs are often very much easier to see than the need for salvation, than the need for faith in the gospel. There is the need of hunger and poverty. There are the environmental needs. There are all sorts of social needs that we see very clearly around us. And of course, the Bible does tell us to love our neighbor. And of course, caring for people, relieving suffering, is an entirely appropriate thing for Christians to do. We have been loved and we are to respond by loving others. As Galatians 6 puts it, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. But that social action is not the gospel. It is a response to the gospel. It is not the gospel itself. The world will never have its ultimate needs met by our social action. It'll never be renewed until the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, we need to prioritize the mission, which is bringing the gospel of salvation uh, to all people. I say that because it's so easy to lose that perspective. It's so easy over a couple of generations to forget that that is the mission we've we've been given. It's a little bit like the golf club that had been around for quite a long time and it'd become a kind of a social club. And actually, eventually, someone realized that although it was called a golf club, nobody was actually playing golf anymore. There was this kind of pile of strange sticks in the corner that had been there rusting. There was a big sort of green area outside. And it said golf club over the doorway. Uh, But actually, no one could remember a time when people who'd been to the club actually played golf. You might think that's a ridiculous example. But what about YMCA? Young Man's Christian Association. Uh, similar kind of thing is a Christian association that happened a few, uh, a couple of generations ago that was put together to proclaim the gospel to young men uh, in this country. YMCA, you probably heard of the song at least, if you haven't heard of the organization. What happened to the C of YMCA? It's a completely non-Christian organization. The gospel has completely dropped out in about three generations. Can happen to a golf club, can happen to a parachurch organization, It can happen to us. But of course, that means it depends on each of us, uh, each one of us individually, doesn't it, Uh, to keep clear and to grasp hold of it, the mission and church, uh, the mission of the church and you then. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how much I stand here and say, this is the mission of the church and we mustn't lose it, uh, and how much we kind of write it into our constitution and website and talk about it in our vision day in a couple of weeks' time. Actually, at the end... It really does boil down to each of us individually taking this on board and living it out in our lives. 
And therefore, let me give you three ways of doing this to conclude. Three questions that we can be asking. First, it's important to be asking the question, whom can I bring to church? Whom can I bring to church? Because the church is always going to be the best place for non-Christians to come and not only hear the gospel, but see the gospel lived out uh, as we adopt and live out God's order as we, we've been learning uh, in 1 Timothy. See, the way we do church demonstrates to the world that order of creation. We saw this in 1 Timothy 2, didn't we? We said that the, the difference between men and women, something that the world is so confused about is actually a strategic thing because nowhere else really are people going to see or hear that. But they come to church and they get a glimpse of it. And this does mean that church must be attractional, that we have to think a little bit about how it works for outsiders. And I'm talking much more than just getting rid of uncomfortable pews. I'm talking about the language we use, the welcome, uh, the fact that we're, we have those sort of horseshoe conversations rather than circle conversations at coffee time, that we're open to new people, that we're able actually to welcome people from different cultures as well. By 2050, um, <clears throat> a couple of things are going to happen in 2050. Apparently, there'll be no one driving diesel cars on the roads. Uh, there'll be no one using gas boilers. And a third of the population will be from an ethnic minority, according to current trajectories. So we need to be able to meet those people and reach them and uh, welcome them. We need to be able to do that. So that also means embodying the gospel in our Christian friendships so that the non-Christian can see what it means to belong to the people of God. Uh, Jesus uh, says this very clearly in Mark, uh, John 13, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I've been emphasizing that this is not to be a holy huddle, but that doesn't mean that we don't love each other and enjoy re relationships together. And as we are loving each other as Christians, that is actually part of the mission too, because the world gets to look on and see the difference that Jesus has made. So that's the first question. Whom can I bring to church? Second question is, how can I grow as a disciple? We've seen that part of the mission is to grow upwards in maturity. And therefore, um, if you think back to that arrow, um, we grow through uh, struggles as we learn to put the gospel into practice. We go through training. Uh, we go through hearing God's word. We are moving towards maturity in Christ. So unless you are Jesus or dead and resurrected, you have growth to do. You have work to do. And so do I. And so one of the questions uh, that I want to be asking is, how can I be growing as a disciple? Because that is part of the mission. 1 Timothy 4.15, which we're going to look at next Sunday, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, Paul says to Timothy, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you'll save both yourself and your hearers. That's very interesting, isn't it? So the way you live, your godliness, the way you live in terms of your body and sex and self-control and all those sorts of things, and also the way you wash up in your flat. You know, when no one else is washing up and the washing up is mounting up and mounting up and there are little rotten bits in the teacups and everybody's thinking it's somebody else's responsibility and you do it. Wow, what a powerful uh, influence that is 
for someone to come in and find all the washing up done. Or that you don't swear when other people are. Or someone was telling us uh, the other day how hard it is for her not to join in the conversation about the boss or the lecturer or whatever it is. Those seemingly little insignificant things, as well as the big things, part of the mission, part of what attracts the world to the church. How can I grow as a disciple? And thirdly, how can I grow others as disciples? If this is part of the mission, then we need each other. And I want to be asking the question always, how can I be a better servant of Jesus and others? How can I help others to progress? How can I encourage them? And one little thing that we've been talking about and emphasizing as a church for a while is just that ability to open the Bible and, and read it with another person in that one-to-one ministry. Learn to do that. Make that your, one of your tools that you want to leave university equipped with. It's powerful and effective. It'll give you a lifetime of ministry uh, ahead of you. But that's just one uh, example. How are you going to be able to serve Jesus by discipling others? Three questions. And who can I bring to church or whom? How can I grow as a disciple? And who else uh, can I disciple? But how involved are you going to be in this mission? How committed are you going to be? Well, <clears throat> let me leave you with this picture. Um, it's a nice looking breakfast, egg on the plate, a nice rasher of bacon. But what is the difference between the contribution that the hen and the pig makes? Well, the answer is the hen is involved and the pig is committed. And so... <laughs> I'm going to leave you with that question. Are you going to be involved in God's mission or are you going to be committed? Well, let's uh, think about that as we sing our final song, uh, which reminds us of the great task ahead and God's call on each of us uh, to be involved. uh, Sorry, not involved, to be committed. Let's stand and sing.